millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Richard, have you ever given up an idea that is near and dear to your heart? Yes, several times, but usually gradually over quite a long period of time. But quite recently... In fact, within the last month, after a conversation with a dear friend, I changed my mind on something I felt fairly strongly. Ask me after our interview, and uh, I'll explain what happened. I'm looking forward to it. For me, I'm sure there's a lot of things I should have changed my mind on. You know, I'm not sure I have in the kind of road to Damascus fashion. But today, we're going to follow the intellectual journey of a man who rejected the ideology he'd built much of his life on. How to open your mind, Jerry Taylor. A free market economy does not work if the price signals are completely screwed up. But our price signals in the energy market are completely shot full of holes and utterly inaccurate because they do not price the damages associated with energy consumption. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How How do do we we fix fix it? it? How do we fix it? Before we get started, a quick announcement, and we're excited about this. How Do We Fix It is a member of the Democracy Group, a brand new network of podcasts about democracy, civic engagement, and civil discourse. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about our member shows and sign up for our mailing list to receive updates with new episodes, deep dive playlists, and more. Our guest is Jerry Taylor. He spent 23 years at the influential Cato Institute, a libertarian think tank that argues for limited government and is against many regulations. I interviewed Jerry a few weeks ago for an article. The topic was climate change, but I came away fascinated with his intellectual evolution on that and other topics. You know, you don't really meet people very often who are willing to rethink their deepest convictions. In 2015, Jerry launched the Niskanen Center, which is a think tank devoted to promoting flexible, pragmatic ideas that often cut across party lines. Welcome to our table at How Do We Fix It? Thanks. Thanks for having me. So your policy expertise has long been in energy. And on the issue of climate, you used to consider yourself a lukewarmist. Explain to our listeners what that means. Well, it's in, of the many tribes of pseudo-semi or flat-out denialism, lukewarming uh, or lukewarmists would say that uh, we accept the climate change is a thing. It's real. It's not make-believe. We agree that it's driven by industrial emissions, so it's anthropogenic. 
uh, and it's not natural. Uh, we're causing it. But in the range of possible outcomes from warming, we thought the evidence that warming would be on the low end of the range of possible outcomes was, was more persuasive than the argument that it was going to be a book of revelations. And so Luke Warmer simply argued that climate change was real. Uh, we were causing it. Uh, but it would likely be a relatively modest event and the costs of doing something about it are greater than the costs of letting it play out and just adopting. So that was the old line that I took at the Cato Institute. And then you changed your mind after advocating this position for a number of years. Yeah, and it didn't happen all at once. Nobody changes their mind about what they do for a living like in a day. Uh, but what I was doing at Cato was a little bit different from what a lot of people in public policy do. I wasn't simply preaching to the choir, trying to rally my troops and provide the best ammo I could for people who already agreed with me. What I was trying to do was actually change people's minds. And if you're going to go out there and change people's minds, you need to confront them. So I spent a lot of time debating uh, climate activists. I had to pay attention to them, take them seriously, know them better than my opposition and find the holes. And what I found increasingly is that that exercise became incredibly difficult. I mean, the evidence for climate change as a significant, serious problem that required really aggressive responses has become stronger and stronger and stronger over time. I started this business in 1991 at the Cato Institute, uh, and the scientific evidence now that we need to take this seriously is really powerful. So I got to the point after a while in this work where I could not find a credentialed economist who published in the peer-reviewed literature on climate economics, who opposed things like carbon tax. I couldn't find a single one. And you said that you found that some of the arguments coming from your side, arguments you've been relying on and taking out to the public, were actually not as strong as they looked. You, some of the people on your side were cherry-picking the data. Yeah, a great example of this was uh, uh, an argument that you hear from a lot of uh, climate uh, skeptics and denialists, which is that the models run hot. The models don't run hot. But it's very easy to tell a glib story. We didn't see X. We've only seen half of X. The models run hot. You can't trust the models, which isn't quite true at all. And it's also ignoring the fact that there's a lot of other lines of evidence here, too. It's not just... Uh, climate models which cause us concern. We know that when the atmosphere is loaded with greenhouse gases, like it has been in the past, that warming follows. If it didn't, then our fundamental understanding of, of uh, physics is completely wrong. When you started moving away from your old world, what happened? Well, what happened is, as I increasingly lost faith in the narratives that uh, we were telling at Cato, uh, I, I brought my concerns to you know, the senior management and argued that, you know, these are bad places for us to be in. And I tried to get Cato out of the climate business. Um, and I lost those fights. And so as long as we were going to be in this, in this uh, position on the climate debate, and I was losing confidence in that position, I tried to find other things to do. To argue against something which is such a core aspect of right-wing libertarian slash conservative identity uh, is to put yourself on some pretty thin ice. Now you lead the Niskanen Center, a think tank that argues for more centrist, pragmatic policies. Can you describe your core philosophy? Yeah, I really wouldn't call it centrist. We're more eclectic. So we call ourselves radical moderates, for lack of a better phrase. Uh, the short version is that we think that the main conflict points in American politics are completely uh, artificial and bogus. So, for instance, on the right, you see an embrace of free markets. And they believe they're in a war with the left, which wants more social insurance and welfare. What it misses is that 
Without social insurance and welfare, free markets don't function very well, and they certainly won't get much political support. And likewise, without a wealth-creating dynamic economy, you cannot pay the bills for the kind of social insurance and welfare programs you want for people who can't compete well in that kind of dynamic economy. Um, and we find the same thing when it comes to the debate about uh, social cohesion and um, pluralism. A lot of people on the right today are concerned about immigration. They're concerned about multiculturalism because they think the country is breaking apart into too many different tribes, which are increasingly uncomfortable with one another. But the reality is, is society is so heterogeneous, and there's so many different cultures that are, that are as part of America and go back as far as you'd like, that only with a healthy degree of respect for pluralism and multiculturalism can we hold together. And, and you can go on and on and on in this debate, like, well, the debate about whether you want a free market economy or do you want to regulate it for greenhouse gas emissions is another great example. The free market economy does not work if the price signals are completely screwed up. But our price signals in the energy market are completely shot full of holes and utterly inaccurate because they do not price the damages associated with energy consumption. So give us the rationale for taxing or pricing that carbon. The basic objective here is to make price signals accurate, because right now we're subsidizing greenhouse gas emissions. We are not forcing consumers to pay the cost of the damages they're imposing on others. And what we know is that consumers do respond to energy prices. I mean, we're not just guessing about how the economy might respond. It is as much a matter of consensus in the economic community carbon taxes are as the best response to climate change, as it is a consensus in the scientific community that global warming is a thing and that man is the main cause of it. What sort of damage is in effect being subsidized that's not being counted for under the current system without carbon pricing? Well, flooding for one. I mean, as sea levels rise, you're seeing more flooding events uh, through just storm surges. And uh, so not simply matters related to hurricanes, just Conventional flooding operations are causing increasing amounts of damage in states like Florida and South Carolina. It's unavoidable. We know this. We can see the damages playing out in front of our very eyes. More damaging storms, hurricanes, and things like that. The wildfires. I mean, California would not have been burned to a crisp several months ago had it not been for the uh, rising temperatures and the droughts that have been that have hit that state, which. They're not new, but they are made more severe by uh, global warming. What we're seeing in Australia is an example of the same sort of thing. Um, you'd have to be blind not to see what's happening to the temperatures uh, and, and what's happening to climate conditions and the costs they're imposing. And we can be very precise about what percentage of that is driven by climate change with, uh, with recent uh, evolutionary advances in uh, climate economics. And, of course, tomorrow... What we are going to be giving to our children and grandchildren in a two-degree or three-degree Celsius world is, is almost frightening and off the charts. We, we've never been there before, so there's some uncertainty about that. But the higher-end scenarios, which are quite possible, are extremely frightening. There are a lot of conservative, or at least a growing number of conservatives, who support some form of a carbon tax. We had former Representative Bob Inglis on our show in episode 119. Most of the conservatives favor a plan where the government takes in the revenue from the carbon tax, but then they immediately distribute it back out to the public in what's known as a carbon dividend. How do they propose for that to work? 
Well, there's various uh, means by which you could execute a policy like that. The most straightforward is that the revenue that is gained by the tax is put into a separate account and then it's rebated on a per head basis or per household basis. And under that scenario, more people are advantaged by the policy than are hurt by it. In other words, for a majority of Americans, the refund check you would get, your share of the carbon tax revenue, is larger than the tax sum that you paid for carbon taxes. So that's the idea, is to get public buy-in to something that's difficult to get the public buy-in for, right? We don't want to have yellow vest protests in the United States. And this is an idea to minimize the chance that that will happen. But how many conservatives actually are talking about the possibility of a carbon tax or doing anything much more than just changing some of their language? Well, it depends on uh, which community of conservatives we're talking about. Uh, within academia, uh, there's a lot of support for the idea on the right, believe it or not. Um, within uh, the, uh, the establishment of Washington, D.C., not very popular at all. Look, I had to start my own think tank so I could make a living making this argument, right? Um, within the United States Congress, uh, even less support. There's some. Uh, there are members of Congress, about 40 or 50 carbon price curious Republicans <laughs> who may not, you know, sign their, uh, put their name to a bill right now, but there's no political window for it at the moment. But uh, they're interested in the idea and in some ways, uh, you know, leaning into it. Uh, but uh, the problem is that uh, they're not all that wild about the dividend part of this, on Capitol Hill anyway, even these Republicans mm. who are open to the conversation, because they see a dividend as an entitlement. So the way they look at it is, all right, you're asking me to pass the biggest tax in American history. That's a big ask. You're also asking me to say Al Gore was right all along. That's a really big ask, too. And now you're going to add to that and say, we're also going to have a new entitlement program where the government will guarantee you a check every year. That's problem number three. Now, look, I know a dividend is not so much an entitlement, but it's the way they look at it on Capitol Hill that makes it problematic. And on the left, there's some resistance to the dividend because people want to use that money for other good causes, right? I mean, I, I, when, when we talked the other day, you mentioned that uh, Niskane and Center isn't completely married to the dividend I idea, just so that there's some flexibility to negotiate with these different interested parties. Yeah, the objective here is to put a price on carbon as high a price as we can politically get away with. Um, and that is going to immediately have an impact on uh, greenhouse gas emissions. Our main job is to address that problem. It just so happens that if you correct the prices for fossil fuels uh, in this economy, uh, by imposing a carbon tax to make them honest prices. The government's getting a lot of money on it. So what do we do with it? It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And we're speaking with Jerry Taylor of the Niskanen Center. More coming up. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. 
Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Recommendations. Jim, what have you been reading? I'm reading a book right now that actually came out in 2011, and I'm just getting to it. It's by uh, writer James Gleick, and it's called The Information. He's the author who wrote that really influential book on chaos theory. It's a history of how the process of communicating gradually turned into the science of information. He goes from the rise of early writing in alphabets to the telegraph and Ada Lovelace and her theories about how computers might work, and ultimately to how we got to the point where we realized we could boil the essence of communication down to individual digital bits. So it's a really heady, abstract work, but one that's told with a lot of great examples, and you really get to know all these fascinating thinkers along the way. So it's a real real eye-opener that takes something that's all around us and helps us understand it on a much deeper level. Now back to our interview with Jerry Taylor. You changed your mind on climate change, and so that invites this question. You were once a, a dedicated libertarian, but two years ago you wrote that you've abandoned the libertarian project and that you've really abandoned ideology. So what do you mean, and, and what does that journey involve? Well, it, it's, uh, it, was a, it was a matter of two things in my case. One, it became exhausting to fight off ideological policemen 24-7. The purity police. <laughs> the purity police, right. But more importantly, ideology is nothing if it's not the elevation of one particular consideration as the most significant thing that you're interested in pursuing in public policy, right? So if you're a progressive DSA-style Democrat, DSA, it's going to be D Democratic D Socialists of America. You're probably going to say social justice is your main concern in politics. And if you're an old-school liberal, you might say it's multiculturalism and pluralism and civil liberties. If you're a mainstream conservative, it's social cohesion and community peace and stability. If you're a libertarian, it's uh, individual liberty. Or there's other conservatives who would say wealth creation is their main interest. All of these considerations in American politics are important. Social cohesion is important. Social justice is important. Equality is important. Pluralism is important. Civil liberties are important. Wealth creation is important. Individual liberty is important. They're all important. But which one we consider most important really depends on the context. That requires a judgment call which is not easily discerned by repairing to the one book, which tells you all you need to know about how to look at public policy. So I gave up ideology, the isms, and uh, am now at a loss for how to describe myself, which is why we find ourselves as moderate. So to get to your current position as an advocate of, of kind of open-minded moderation, you had to give up and question a lot of things that were really considered gospel in the conservative libertarian world that you came from. On the left today, we're seeing the rise of a lot of very ideological progressivism in the Democratic Party. We're seeing it right now in the presidential primaries. What ideas do you think progressives should rethink? Well, there's a lot. Uh, I mean, as much as I'm not a libertarian, I'm, I'm certainly not a progressive either. 
Uh, but they're right about a lot of things. But one of the things where I think they're most wrong is when they hold up the Northern European welfare states as their lodestar for where they'd like to take America. Now, in one way, I completely agree with them. If you look at the economy of Sweden and Norway and Denmark, the countries that you know, inspire Bernie Sanders, you'll find that even by libertarian metrics, those published by the Cato Institute and the Heritage Foundation, these are also the freest economies in the world. Think about that. Now, how is it that Bernie Sanders and the DSA and Ocasio-Cortez and the squad, as, as they've been called, are now using as lodestars these rip-roaring kind of laissez-faire economies? Well, the reality is, are these Northern European welfare states are not socialist in virtually any guise or form. They are relatively lightly regulated economies, more lightly regulated than the U.S. economy in most ways, but they have a lot of social insurance around them. There's a lot of guardrails. So if people can't compete well in that economy, rather than being left to dig through dumpsters for old chicken bones, they're taken care of. And they have free health care, and they have a lot of free education, and they have a lot of free housing. They have a lot of the things that the progressive left wants. But the reason the European welfare states ended up in that place wasn't because anybody said, hey, this is a great model. What happened was there was a lot of social insurance and welfare programs that they couldn't pay for with a kind of debt economies. They lightened the regulations. With, with a highly economy. regulated economy. Right, exactly. And so I kind of like those Northern European political models. Now, we're never going to be exactly like Denmark or Sweden or Norway, and it's silly to think we can just adopt all of their laws and regulations and politically get away with that. Or taxes. But the general idea of moving that direction makes a lot of sense because you're never going to get a lot of public support for a lightly regulated, wealth-creating, creative destruction, laissez-faire-ish economy that still appeals to me in a lot of different ways unless you can convince people that they're not going to be left to die in the jungle if they're not you know, someone like Jeff Bezos. But I think a lot of progressives don't understand that. They, they don't appreciate the fact that those, those political models they like so much can only work because there's a lot of creative destruction in those economies, and there's a lot of capitalist activity. And likewise, people on the right don't understand this very well either. They say they want that lightly regulated economic model, but tell me where we've ever seen it without social insurance to protect people, which you can't get in those markets anyway. You've spoken about a term called motivated cognition. Mm -hmm. Uh, What is that? David Hume once said that reason is a slave of the passions. Uh, We don't reason and then come to conclusions. We decide what we want to believe, what our passions are, and then we harness our reason with all of our might to talk ourselves into why that's a good idea or to justify the thing we want to do anyway. This is universal. This is not simply a problem on the right or in my old world of libertarianism. It is a universal observation. People believe what they would like to be true and then harness their, their mind and reasoning power to justify that. But, but is being more rational the answer? I mean, don't we need, isn't it good to have people who come, come at things from, from different points of view and different deeply held principles? Well, no, that's exactly the, and, and there's nothing you can do about that anyway. And one of the reasons why I've given up ideology is also the futility of it. There is no way that people who think individual liberty is the sum and circumference of what should be our main concern in public life, there's no way those people, my old community, 
is going to turn America into a bunch of Ayn Rand reading, Hayek quoting, Gulch living, you know, libertarians. It can happen. <laughs> They've been trying for years, and they're still about 3% of the population, right? And likewise, there is no amount of fervor that might come out of UCAL Berkeley that's going to convince people who live in Tulsa, Oklahoma, to go vegan and to wave social justice banners. It's just not going to happen. And no ideology is going to conquer the other. We have to learn to live with one another with these different ideas. Why do you think moderation of the sort that you espouse has gotten a bad rap? And do you think we can bring it back? You know, it's funny. Uh, that's the conventional wisdom. But think about it. The most impressive and successful politicians in the United States have tended to be moderates. George Washington was a famous moderate of his day. And even though we look back and don't think of Abraham Lincoln as a moderate, in his day, he was a moderate. Dwight Eisenhower is a tremendously successful president, a moderate. Teddy Roosevelt, while leading the charge for progressivism, was a moderate in his day relative to the, uh, the left and the right flanks as you might define them back then. Barack Obama governed, even if he may not always have talked as one, but he certainly governed as a liberal Republican, more or less. Bill Clinton was a political colossus, and he was a moderate. I think actually there's a lot of there's a lot of pent up public support for it because a world without moderation. I mean, think about it. what is a world without moderation? A world of zealotry, and we can see around us right now what that looks like. How many people in the United States are comfortable with this? Not that many. I mean, if you if you wear a MAGA hat and bark at a rally with Donald Trump, maybe you're you're loving it. And if you're going to hashtag resist meetings twenty four seven, maybe you kind of like it. But I think the one thing that Joe Biden picked up on, that I think Amy Klobuchar has picked up on, that Pete Buttigieg has picked up upon, is this idea of exhaustion with this, and that we don't want to beat each other's throats all the time. And it is not, I think, in the spirit of how most Americans want to live their political lives. So I think we're going to see a return of this, whether it's going to be called moderation or reformism or uh, purple rosism. I don't really know. But I think America's fairly exhausted with its run of, uh, of zealotry of late. Jerry Taylor, thanks very much for joining us. I thought we were going to interview a a political moderate, Jim, but Jerry Taylor, in some respects, is is radical, and his policies and his ideas often are not centrist. Right. Yeah, I think I use the term centrist to imply that he's not locked into the traditional left or libertarian side of, of the spectrum, but it is really interesting to think if you if you take this kind of radical moderation and you have certain principles that you think are important and help you look at issues maybe differently from other people, you might wind up kind of on various parts of the chessboard, you know, advocating policies where some things appeal to progressives, some things appeal to conservatives. And it's not just a matter of making a big mush right in the middle of the field of possible policies. I have a bias here, but I enjoy it when I hear stories of people with really strong opinions who've changed their mind, who've gone from from one part of the political spectrum to another and have done it through a period of time and, and a lot of thought. Yeah, you know, he talked about this concept of motivated cognition where even if you're really well informed and you read a lot, if you have this strong ideological bent, 
you filter everything you read through that. And so your mind might not be as open as you think it is. We're not always as flexible as we flatter ourselves to be. But I do believe that it is possible to change your mind. That's why stories like Jerry's are fascinating to me. But I'm not going to let you off the hook. You mentioned in the, at the top uh, an example where you changed your mind quite recently. It was, I'm sure it was something I said. <laughs> no, it was actually with a good friend of mine. Um, I was talking about how I had been somewhat skeptical about whether Trump's actions on Ukraine, while really disturbing, were enough to merit his removal from office. And I found myself in this conversation doing what journalists do of on the one hand, but on the other. And and she put her hand on my arm and said, there's sometimes, Richard, when you need to take a stand. And I thought about it. And she's right. And I do think that sometimes I'm too skeptical and that I don't feel as much outrage perhaps as I should. And in the case of, of the impeachment hearing, I, I, you may not agree with me, but I came down feeling after I'd spoken with her that I had been wrong and that uh, there, there is a very strong moral case to be made for uh, Trump's removal from office. And I, I was quite moved by that. And it did sort of change my worldview a little bit in that Sometimes we do need to take sides rather than just look at everything from every different point of view. Yeah, I'm still an every point of view kind of guy. I like to think the merits or demerits of the Trump impeachment are a little bit beyond the wrap-up on this individual show. But that's our show for this week. This is How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. Our producer is Miranda Schaefer. We're a production of Davies Content. We make podcasts for companies and nonprofits. If you want to learn more, go to DaviesContent.com. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.